recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Welcome to episode 32 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, with you and Christy. Hello, Cameron. Ewan is an employment lawyer and partner at Duntroon LLP in Toronto, Canada, and online at duntroon.law. I'm a PR guy based in Hong Kong and publisher of the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend. You can also follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, and subscribe to us uh, on YouTube and SoundCloud. But most important of all, please sign up for our newsletter. You can get updates when new episodes drop and other show information at prlawpodcast.club. We have a very big show planned today, along with a special guest in our green room ready to join us shortly to talk all things PR. Uh, but first, Ewan, what's happening on your side? Well, I didn't even know we have a green room. That's exciting. We're, we're, <laughs> I think our guest probably doesn't know either. <laughs> oh, well, I, I'm hanging out down in the basement today. We've got um, 110 kilometer an hour winds here in Toronto. So I hope uh, I hope you can hear me all right. I hope I don't blow away. Uh, you're not going to be happy to hear this, Ewan, because you know we're recording today again on Monday morning Hong Kong time, Sunday evening your time, and it is a beautiful blue sky day here with a high of 24 degrees. It's perfect. Yeah, that 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 really doesn't make me feel any better, Cam. Um, not, not, not in the least. Not in the least. Although I should say I have power. And as I understand, people to the north, east, south and west of me are all without. So um, I, apparently I'm lucky. Yeah, that's uh, that's always an issue. Yeah, with the power lines uh, sort of above ground, because uh, that's the other thing different with with Asia. A lot of the power is, is underground, and so you know when we get the typhoons, the the power stays on, which is quite quite good. But that's one of the challenges of living in a massive country uh, that you get there, and you get many benefits from that too. On the flip side, um, this is true. Yeah, I wanted to to bring up one thing today, Ewan, because you know we we talk about the power of communications and the power of sort of who is saying and what they're saying, what, what their message is uh, and who is delivering the message and how, you know, that can really shape views. So I was really caught uh, yesterday when I came across this video, which was shared on, on uh, Instagram and Twitter as well. And it's about Donald Trump sort of. Um, you and, I'm not sure if you recall, but the Trump campaign, uh, a few days after the election, decided to hold a news conference at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia. Uh, the president said that, that they would go to the Four Seasons to sort of make their case uh, to challenge the election results. And that Four Seasons turned out to be a Four Seasons total landscaping, <laughs> not the Four Seasons hotel. And it's described as a ramshackle industrial zone parking lot near an exit in Philadelphia. And this story is quite funny, you and so I'm going to put a, a link in the show notes. Um, but the main point is, you know, Trump's people were there, including you know Rudy Giuliani and people like that, um, along with another man named Corey Lewandowski. Do you does that name ring a bell to you, Ewan? Yeah. Yeah, of course it does. Yeah. He was Trump's campaign manager in 2016 uh, before he was fired. And that's when Steve Bannon took over. Um, but he has stayed. It's been a CNN pundit over the years, that kind of thing. Um, and he stayed involved with with the Trump campaign. Anyway, it's Corey Lewandowski's wife who posted the video. And here's what she had to say. Hey, y'all. Um, I'm sure you've heard by now that my husband, Corey, 
has been diagnosed with COVID-19. Um, I'm sorry. I, I was going to try to pretend to cry, but I can't even do that, y'all. Y'all know this is going to happen. Like, I knew it was going to happen. I've been telling him, like, it's going to happen. And he's been like, well, you don't know what you're talking about. You're stupid. You're a woman, you know? And I'm like, you always say that. But I always told him, like, God always gets those who need to get God. And he's one of those that needed to get God. And today the Lord has blessed us because today Corey has COVID-19. And I mean, y'all, it was, it was just, it was so validating to see because I swear to God, I turned on my TV last Sunday and I saw that motherfucker. I saw the father of my children at Four Seasons Total Landscaping, standing there like a fucking nerd with Rudy Juliahu and all those other dipshits, you know, pretending like he's not fully involved in Hope Hicks' ass. <laughs> and I saw him and he looked so stupid. And I sent him a text and I was like, you're gonna get COVID. Um, well, I did it with emojis. So it was like, um, like the plain white man emoji, an arrow, the COVID emoji, the mask emoji, the X emoji, and then me and the kids leaving emoji. And he sent me a text back and he was like, Ducky, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, but lo and behold, here we are. <laughs> Listen, um, may the Lord bless you. Sounds like a happy marriage. Well, hey, Cam, you might be the communications guy, but I think uh, that uh, Corey Lewandowski's wife is the one who's dropping bombs there. God mm -hmm. always gets those who need to get got. Somebody <laughs> should put that on a bumper sticker. That's amazing. <laughs> Yes. You know, when I listened to this, you and I just thought this is sort of a worst nightmare for people because, you know, if, if you professionally criticize somebody, there's still sort of an arm's length between who the person is and what they do. Not always, but sometimes. But this is an example of the closest person, theoretically, to Lewandowski. The person, it's the mother of his children. It's the person who, who knows him best to talk this way about him publicly. I mean, it's one thing to say this privately to her friends, another to put it out there publicly. Uh, it's just the strongest indictment of Lewandowski you could possibly have. Um, and again, this isn't a company PR. This is not some sort of you know company initiative. It's just one person speaking to Instagram by herself but the power behind that, just because of the context, is is quite incredible. Now, Cam, just a quick point, because, you know, we often talk about on, on this show how particular messages are mischaracterized or misreported in the news. My understanding, and I, you know, I saw a news report, uh, and maybe this news report was mischaracterizing what actually happened, but that the intention was, in fact, to hold the press conference at the Four Seasons Total Landscaping, and that this was largely determined because of its proximity to highways in terms of being able to get people in and out, and that it was largely the media that picked it up and, and concocted this story that the intention was to have it at a Four Seasons hotel and, you know, Trump's incompetent communications people effectively just, you know, put out the wrong or booked the wrong event. Is that, is that not right? That is one uh, version that's floating around. Um, I'll, I'll post a couple of articles in the show notes. It's not clear what happened. Um, I would suspect that this is not on purpose, only because it looked, as a backdrop, it looked awful. Um, if you're, remember, you, you're, you're the president of the United States and you're challenging an election. So it would seem very odd to do that in a strip mall uh, in front of, yeah, a really rundown 
building. But also, how did that happen? Like, how did it end up there? I mean, there, there's some people are speculating that, that Trump said publicly it would be at the Four Seasons, but the Four Seasons Philadelphia was booked out. And so they had to find a way to make what Trump said true. That's one version that came out. I don't, I don't think that one sounds right to me either. Um, but I'm, I don't think we're ever going to know, Ewan, because uh, it's just one of those things that's uh, it's going to, to be an election mystery. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askus at prlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askus at prlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. All right, we're really happy this week because we do have a very special guest uh, joining us today. It's Simon Murphy. He's the head of corporate at Edelman. Um, I think our PR and communications listeners are probably familiar with uh, that brand name, Edelman. But for those of you who aren't, uh, Edelman's one of the largest, if not the largest, uh, PR and communications firms in the world. So it's a, it's a treat to have Simon join us today. Welcome to the show. Hey, Cam. Hey, you, and Thank you for having me. Yeah, no problem. Um, before we get started, maybe you can just sort of give us a bit of a back, bit, bit of background on on yourself and sort of what you do at Edelman. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as you rightly called out, I'm the head of corporate at Edelman in Hong Kong. Um, Edelman um, is the world's largest independent communications firm. So there's about 6,000 of us around the world. Um, and typically we work with well-known and less well-known brands and companies who uh, either want to promote or else protect their brand reputation. And we do that by by earning trust. Trust is the currency which helps uh, protect those firms and uh, wins loyal advocates out there. Yeah, that's another thing that we have talked a lot about on the show is, is trust and how important that is uh, for companies that are trying to communicate. Um, I, you know, I've worked with Simon a little bit in my current role, and obviously one of the big issues has been this year and even even prior to that um, is the U.S. election, which was held earlier this month. And I mean, it's it is just a U.S. presidential election, but it seems to have impact that goes far and wide uh, beyond the United States. Um, sort of what was your impression on this election cycle, Simon, in terms of sort of how companies outside of the U.S. were preparing? So what questions did they have or what did they seem to be um, concerned about? Well, yeah, I mean, you're right. It, it, it happened in the U.S. Cam, of course, but it, I think in living memory is probably one of the most globally anticipated um, elections. And, and, you know, a week and a half after the event, we still don't really know the outcome. Um, and that really reflects the uncertainty that this has caused, uh, not just for firms uh, operating within the US and international firms dealing with the rest of the world, but also other regions as well. So in terms of my clients, uh, there's been a lot of uh, uh, eager anticipation, but also defensiveness. Um, the geopolitics between the US and China, of course, has been rife in the recent months. And this has a real impact, uh, not just on the Asia region, but the world in general. So uncertainty, I think, is probably the word that underscores uh, the US election uh, and continues to do so. Right. And in particular, uh, Chinese companies as well seem to be sort of a target of, of, of this administration. Yeah, no, it, it appears so. Uh, and I think uh, with Trump almost conceding defeat by his favorite medium, Twitter, or, or, or has he? We'll see um, as uh, uh, various law cases proceed. 
But yeah, it certainly seems that uh, one of the um, accusations he's making is that China helped him lose the election because that's where COVID started. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And what Simon's referring to is, is uh, yeah, the president seemed to indicate potentially that Joe Biden did win the election, uh, but then he quickly reneged and said it was rigged and he's not going to concede anything uh, in typical Trumpian style. In um, capital letters, so it must be true. Exactly, exactly. He loves to do that. Um, you know, we, we talk on this show a lot about how companies need to focus on PR, that it's not just an afterthought or an admin kind of function, um, but something that sort of requires investment because bad PR can be very severe, obviously. It could put companies out of business even. Um, so what are some changes to the industry that you've seen um, sort of over your career? Because you're quite experienced sort of in this field. How has it evolved and, and how have sort of your clients changed over time? Well, yeah. I mean, I, I started my career working very much with brands who are wanting to promote themselves in, uh, I guess, the traditional PR sense of of, of of getting exposure within the traditional media. And, and back then, of course, 25 odd years ago, uh, the traditional media was pretty strong. People read newspapers. These days they don't. Um, and so that storytelling has evolved. We now talk to multiple different stakeholders, not just the media, but government, uh, influencers, industry, uh, and employees are a really important audience as well. And we do so through multiple channels. So it's no longer just uh, the traditional uh, media. Um, so that's the kind of nature of the storytelling, how that's evolved. But also the industry itself has become a lot more consultative. Uh, we're there to help tell stories, but we're also there to help problem solve uh, and also uh, consult. So it, it, it's, it's a pretty stressful space, but uh, I think the diversity of, of what we do makes it really interesting. You know, when, when companies do come to you or when, um, I mean, either in your role at Edelman or sort of outside that and talk about putting together a PR or a communications plan, I mean, what do you think is the one area that companies usually overlook or often overlook, uh, you know, when they're going down this path? I think the, the, the area they often most overlook is what's the story, which goes back to what, what we're fundamentally still doing is telling a story about an organization and what it stands for. So I always boil it back down to the, you know, the core concept of the why, how, and what. And it just amazes me how many organizations don't have that why in their storytelling. And it's so important. We live in this world where misinformation is rife. People in general don't know what news sources to trust. So they'll go to social media three or four times, even though what's on social media is mostly garbage. And then they'll look at the traditional media and they'll listen to their employers. So telling a simple effective, emotive story that truly connects to their audience is so important. So that's number one. The second thing that they need to be thinking about is how do we earn trust? Trust is the currency that really helps ensure against crisis down the track and wins advocates because, you know, this is fundamentally uh, what we, what companies are out there trying to achieve is to convert people and, and win fans. These are interesting points because actually I come across something similar, which is the the why that you talked about. Because sometimes there are um, companies or, or or PR people who say, you know, let's put out a press release on this and get it out, or let's um, you know publish this article or whatever it might be. But the question always is is why are we doing that? What what, what is the outcome that we're looking for? It's a cliche, but sort of what does success look like? You know, what do 
we want out of this. And I think that's one area where it does seem to kind of fall down. We're not really in the business of just sending out press releases for the fun of it or just for the record. Um, it's for a purpose. It's to, you know, generate coverage or make a point or, or something along those lines. And I, I do think that's often forgotten. Yeah, no, I agree. Uh, and what's interesting, though, Cam, is that, that you know, the press release, of course, was or still is uh, for many organizations, a, a means of getting a, a missive out about the company. But many organizations these days, you know, they don't bother sending out press releases. Microsoft, for example, uh, at a global level, posts, posts on its blogs, the most important announcements that, that, you know, wants to get out there. And it has a legion of advocates who will follow it as journalists, analysts, industry watchers, consumers, customers, you name it, who will pick up on this news and then share it. So really, it goes back to that notion of what do we want to say, but how do we want to earn it? You know, that, when I when I worked at the uh, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, uh, and we did launch a chief executive blog when I was there, um, and you're right, like publishing something in a blog or in an article on the website often does so much better than a press release, and it can be the same subject, the same key messages, uh, but written in different ways, and one is so much more effective than the other. Yeah, that is something that's really come to light, but I think it's hard to get clients or companies to think that way just because a press release has been along around for so long. It's the first thing they think of often, yeah? Right, absolutely. But, you know, if, if you're starting out there as an intrepid uh, consultant, uh, you've got to be thinking across multiple channels because, as I mentioned, you know, audiences these days don't necessarily read newspapers or they don't necessarily read uh, CEO blogs or they don't necessarily read uh, LinkedIn forums. So you've got, to, you've got to take your mix. You've got to understand where your audience is at. Uh, and then really it is a conversation and it's a conversation which is uh, not meant to be too silly, uh, but it's meant to be engaging and uh, able to connect. Right. Uh, so it's, it's, a, it's a complex uh, it's a complex. Uh, issue. Yeah, I'm going to get out of the way so Ewan can ask a question here in a second. But but the last one from me really is, um, we, we, we talk on this show a lot about advice for small businesses or for people in small companies, sort of how, how they can manage employment law and, and um, communications issues. So, I mean, what advice would you give to a small business that maybe doesn't have the resources to go out and hire you at Edelman or, or a full-time communications person in-house even? Um, what, what should they be thinking about the most? What is their number one priority in your view? Well, I think to start off with, what, what is it that they want to be talking about, you know, what, what is the story that they want to tell uh, audience? And also, who is the audience? Who are they trying to influence and, and engage? Uh, so that's really, really critical. I think, you know, you can uh, get access to some some pretty skilled and experienced consultants out there. Edelman's great. Uh, we do a lot of things really, really well. But there's also smaller firms out there who can equally offer some great advice and, uh, and support. Um, so have a look around. There are some, some some good experts out there. I think also, you know, having that North Star of your why, what's the story that you want to tell? And also remembering that it's not a short term exercise. It's a long term goal. And the long term goal should always be about earning trust among your key audience that you want to reach. It's all about advocacy uh, that will help people actively recommend you, but also when times are down, actually actively defend you as well. So it's also about crisis mitigation. These are some of the things you need to think about. Uh, there's some short-term uh, uh, considerations, but also remember it's a long-term goal that essentially is all about earning trust capital. 
Yeah, Simon, I just wanted to follow up on your last point. I mean, I, uh, I deal with a lot of small and midsize employers. You know, we're talking hundred or a few hundred employees. And often I find that when we're trying to craft the policies, procedures, and workplace culture that an employer wants to present to the public to, you know, largely to attract top talent or, or top clientele, the PR and communications element of disseminating that brand identity is really important. Unfortunately, I find that a lot of clients get really overwhelmed when they sit down with communications people, you know, and they're, they're introducing industry jargon and different tech products to help promote their brand. Uh, you know, what strategies do you suggest to help engage employers and, and kind of get them on board? You and you touched on an interesting uh, conundrum which has existed uh, for a long time, which is that marriage between legalese and PR. It can always be a slightly tricky one. But look, in terms of in terms of how you can position yourself as an employer of choice, there are many, many ways. Um, you can join associations. You can look at uh, employee engagement and actually use your own employees as advocates to to take the brand out there and talk about why it's so special and such a great place to work. Uh, another important aspect is is what the company. Uh, not, only, not only sells, but actually does from a societal or economic impact. So is there a CSR program or better still, a really strong ESG that looks at areas like how, how the company operates around important issues such as the environment and sustainability, you know, what are its policies on inclusion and so on. These are all issues that really matter to uh, future employees, particularly younger generations. So it's important that you consider not only what the company is saying in terms of its product and sell and what it does, uh, but actually what it stands for as well. And probably the last point I'd make is the importance of leadership. Uh, so, you know, in these days of uh, confusion and uncertainty, more and more people are looking to employers and business leaders for comment and opinion and direction on, on issues around uh, the economy and society. So having a really strong leader who's out there and talking not just about the business, but how the business is participating, how it solves some of the societal and economic issues, that's really important as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. You know, one of the key elements of good corporate governance, and we've talked about this um, before on the show, is this idea of tone from the top. You know, the idea that the CEO and the the senior executives, they need to really set the tone for how the rest of the employees of the company should conduct themselves. Uh, you know, Simon, how much involvement do you think that a communications team should have in that process as opposed to just, you know, letting the CEO or executives run loose and disseminate that message off the cuff, albeit in a more authentic way? Well, um, authenticity, of course, is key, um, but there has to be a marriage between the two. Uh, and I think a great example of that, uh, one that I always point to, is is how uh, Satya Nadella at uh, Microsoft helped transform the image of the organization from the bad boy of, uh, of software sales and monopoly uh, in the 80s and 90s to, to the organization that it is today, which is, is really one that's out there, that, uh, you know, to solve and, and, and help the world um, through, through technology. 
Um, but clearly, I, I don't know if you've read his his biography, but you know the ethics of the man sit very closely at the heart of of Microsoft's uh, purpose these days. And I think you know that direction definitely comes from the top. But is he a communicator? No, not necessarily. He's working with working with teams. Uh, around him, and not just communications teams, of course, but marketing and legal, of course, it's all, it's all important. So uh, the direction should come from the top. Certainly the values should be deep-seated across the leadership uh, spectrum, um, and thereafter it should really be a partnership, uh, a happy partnership between those various uh, teams. I think, you know, the part about the story is really important because that kind of sits at the heart of what you're trying to say. Um, I mean, in, in the case of, for instance, again, when I was at the stock exchange, we really wanted to show that we were, you know, innovative, forward thinking, um, that listing that, you know, there's a very successful financial market um, that we're on par with the other large exchanges in the world. And these key themes kind of you weave them into sort of every bit of communication that you have. Um, again, if you're a technology company, maybe that's innovation and you try and work innovation into your announcements or your, your marketing materials or your communications materials to really try and drive home that key message or that key sort of image that you'd like to cultivate. Yeah, quite right. So I've mentioned values, but of course, uh, at the end of the day, we are telling a story, telling a story through various uh, channels and to various stakeholders. But there has to be consistency there. So underlying that should, of course, be your values and then your North Star, which is the why sits on top. But Cam, as you mentioned, those messages are really important. Typically, we re recommend two or three, um, but they should be repeated as no ad nauseum. So people really get to understand what it is you stand for, what you're trying to say. But yeah, consistency around messages really really important. Right on. Thank you so much for joining us today, Simon. We really appreciate it. My absolute yeah, pleasure. Thanks, thanks, guys. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. That was excellent having Simon on just now. I think, uh, you know, it's good to get that kind of perspective, right? Like he's not an in-house uh, guy. He, he's dealing with a lot of different clients. And so he brings that that perspective uh, to the way he looks at uh, communications. Oh, I'll say, yeah, that was really, really fantastic. I mean, you know, I, I, I wish I sort of had better access to someone like that with a number of my clients because, you know, again, and we, this is why our show exists, right, Kim? We're just talking about the marriage between what you do and what I do. The idea that there, there is this wedding of PR and communications and employment law for employers, for employees, and you really need one just as much as you need the other. And I think there are so many small and mid-size employers out there that effectively turn a blind eye um, to what you guys do and the expertise that you offer, right? They sort of think, well, I've built a website and, uh, and that's good enough and I'm up and running. But really, that's, that's just tip of the iceberg kind of stuff. So, Ewan, what have you got on tap this week? 
Well, you know, Cam, and I understand this might be beating a dead horse a little bit at this point, um, but I wanted to go back to Jeffrey Tubin. I know we talked about uh-huh. him in episode 29, and we were sort of speculating as to what might happen. If there are any listeners who are at this point unfamiliar with the story, and I, I don't really know how that's possible given all the media coverage that this has received, but, you know, Jeffrey Tubin, he wrote for the... Um, for the New Yorker. He also was a legal analyst for CNN or still is, as I understand, a legal analyst for CNN. Um, And a few weeks ago, he was caught masturbating during a Zoom call with a number of his colleagues. He was immediately suspended from the New Yorker. Um, and the New Yorker promised to investigate the incident. Well, we, we learned of the conclusion of that investigation earlier this week and Jeffrey Tubin was fired from the New Yorker. Right. And what ha- did you, and one thing I didn't hear was what happened at CNN. Have they also let him go or do you know, I should probably know that. Well, well, good, good question. So I was, I was hunting around uh, the interwebs earlier today, trying to see if I could get any, anything conclusive on that. My understanding is CNN has yet to issue a statement as to whether or not um, he will remain uh, at CNN. They seem to be quiet. I I wouldn't be surprised if they were waiting to see how um, the New Yorker (laughs) played this out and perhaps to, to the the idea was to follow their steps. Um, I don't, and I don't know if you saw the statement cam from, uh, from Condé Nast's chief people officer, Mm. which I can only assume is, is some fancy name for head mm-hmm. of HR. Yes. And, and just as an aside, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent, but as an employment lawyer, this is precisely the kind of stuff that drives me nuts when um, <laughs> you're sort of going through corporate policies and procedures manuals and companies are creating unnecessarily difficult and convoluted terms for positions or things that can really be simplified to make them easier to understand. Um, anyway, putting, <laughs> putting that aside. So Stan Duncan, who is their chief people officer, um, he circulated a memo to the employees and this is what it said. And I was curious to get your take on this too, camp. So the memo said, I'm writing to share with you that our investigation regarding uh, Jeffrey Tubin is complete. And as a result, he is no longer affiliated with our company. I want to assure everyone that we take workplace matters seriously. We are committed to fostering an environment where everyone feels respected and upholds our standards of conduct. What do you think, Cam? So I have not seen this before. So that's the first time I've heard it. Um, I, I think at first listen, it sounds okay. The only part in there that I personally don't like is the bit about fostering. Uh, what does it say? A, a culture or a workplace or something? That sounds a little PR speaky to me. Um, I think sometimes it's better just to come out and say, he's no longer affiliated with us. This kind of behavior will not be tolerated and, you know, kind of be a little more direct. Um, but I, I think it's, it's not awful. Let's put it that way. It's uh, it's, it's passable. It's satisfactory. Wow. Well, I, I think actually this might be, we, we should make a note. What's the date today? November 15th. Um, you and I agree from the, <laughs> the legal angle. I agree with you. I think it, it probably should have been a little, uh, a little more, I don't know, Kurt is the wrong word, but um, 
perhaps a little more. It looks overly uh, processed. You know, it looks like someone's gone over it again and again and again and again. And I think the the, the lesson in here, though, I think is when when something negative happens and obviously what Tubin did was a blight on the New Yorker. I mean, we talked about that, Um, not the New Yorker's fault, obviously, but, and I don't think anyone's going to cancel their subscription because what Jeffrey Tubin did, um, but it still it associates them with Tubin's act, as you mentioned on uh, episode 29. But I think for companies, you, you don't want to take a negative situation and then your reaction to that negative situation to then talk about how good you are, because that seems a little disingenuous. Um, it's okay to put out positive messages about sort of the workplace culture that you're trying to build, but I would try and keep that separate from this kind of a statement because it's not a pleasant thing. I mean, Jeffrey Tubin, by all accounts, is a well-liked guy at The New Yorker and at CNN. Uh, he's been around a very long time. It's not like, I mean, this was a huge surprise, but he is well-known himself. And I think it's okay just to say this happened and he's now gone and this is something we won't tolerate and leave it at that. Uh, the fluffy stuff can come, can come later. Yeah, I completely agree with you actually. And I mean, particularly considering that this was sort of an internal memo, right? I think all the more reason to just use fewer words, right? And that, that old adage of, of the writing style, if anybody takes the time to look up the economist's writing guide um and it has sort of the i think it's the what the five rules of that george orwell had for writing and one of them is always use fewer words if you can write a sentence using fewer words do so yes always yeah this (laughs) comes up a lot i think that's 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 a rule that more people should follow be it in law pr communications whatever you do um i think that that should be up there among the holy grail of of writing tools um, I, I do have a question for you on this, though, Ewan. Um, normally, HR issues would be kept private. Like if somebody else got got fired for you know stealing the stapler or something, you wouldn't send out a, a, a company-wide memo about that. So at what point, and obviously, Jeffrey Tubit, this became a, a, a public story, and I assumed that that's the difference. But at the same time, what sort of privacy is Tubin entitled to in this case? Because... It's very strange to send a, a, an email across the company because someone has been fired. Uh, that seems quite odd to me. But what's your take? Yeah, I th- you know, I think that's a great point. Now, um, you know, I, I came across this. This was according to a report in the Daily Beast, and it simply said they circulated a memo to employees. Whether it went to all employees, I don't know. Um, it's difficult to to know who it was circulated to specifically. But I think given, you know, just sort of the the scope of what had happened and the press that it received, that frankly, it provided an opportunity for the company to sort of stake its position in terms of these issues. And I think that that's also important, Cam, because, you know, this issue was sort of, it was kind of a novel thing, right? Um, because it was yes. specific to to Zoom, which is a relatively new technological tool, at least for most people in a, in a professional context. So I think it was an opportunity to sort of, you know, for, for Condé Nast, which is a large, you know, huge company to sort of state, look, we're drawing a line here and we all know that, you know, the, the conduct that, Tubin engaged specifically is grossly inappropriate in any context. We know this, but it also sort of states that, you know, anything that you might think 
is borderline inappropriate in a boardroom, for example, it is also inappropriate in a Zoom context. So I think they did sort of have to come out in a, in a sort of a forceful fashion and state that position that we're not going to condone this type of behavior. Yeah. Uh, also, on, on the PR side here, it is normal for companies to not comment on something like this publicly because it is a, a personnel or an HR issue. And a lot of a lot of companies will have this in their communications handbook and say it is a policy of the company not to comment on personnel issues at all. Um, and I think that's generally good, I think, um, because it sets the expectation up front. Um, in fact, at every company I've worked at uh, or dealt with, they've had a, a similar policy. But like you say, you in this case, it became a news story. Um, and I don't know, you know, it, it does, it does take some consideration about where on that spectrum does it trigger, um, you know, a public statement or a public comment, because if it's the receptionist or the janitor who got let go, if it's somebody else who's less in the public eye, um, you, you obviously wouldn't say something publicly. And obviously Jeffrey Tubin is very much in the public eye. So you do say something, but, but where is, where's the line between the two? That's, that's really difficult to say, but I think it should lean more towards uh, not, not speaking publicly about PR or, or, or HR issues. Yeah. The, I mean, obviously trying to figure out where that line is, is always going to be going to be tricky. And again, it's probably going to involve some difficult conversations between you know, people like you and people like me. Um, I mean, the other thing that I wanted to touch on here, Cam, was the timeline, because there was a lot of press uh, that was very, very critical of the New Yorker and Condé Nast for taking so long to terminate too. And so we're, we're talking about a timeline of just over three weeks between the date, uh, you know, that the incident occurred and the, the date that his, his termination was announced. You know, I, in particular, I came across what I thought was a rather silly New York post article that, you know, took the position that Tubin should have been terminated almost immediately, sort of given the clear video evidence that they were dealing with, you know, and my take on this cam I think that position is kind of silly. I, I think, and, I, and I'm, you know, I understand there's going to be those that would, would disagree with me on this. And I'm, you know, sort of happy to, to uh, discuss their comments in future episodes. But, uh, you know, I think Condé Nast actually did the right thing here. And I think they need, they did what more businesses need to do in the age of cancel culture. And that's to sort of trust the policy and procedures that they've built as a company and stick to them and not just stick to them, but stick to them for the low profile cases and even more so for the high profile cases. And if you don't have those clear policies and procedures in place in terms of what's appropriate conduct for employees and what isn't, then create them, circulate them to staff, include them with employment agreements during the hiring process. You know, there needs to be transparency as a company and transparency for employees to ensure that, you know, there's consistency in the way that these disciplinary measures are, are implemented. But I think what the media sort of failed to understand here is that when you want to do that properly and you want to carry out a proper and professional investigation that ensures things like procedural fairness and, you know, ensuring there's no apprehension of bias, that takes time. 
even when you might have, you know, clear video evidence, um, you know, the investigator still needs to review the company's policies and procedures. It needs to consider any relevant laws or statutes that might be at play. It needs to interview any of the relevant witnesses, interview the complainant, interview the respondent, all of these things take time cam Mm -hmm. and you know we've talked about this before that often people are out for blood right away um but i think you know companies walk a very very fine line there in terms of sort of jumping the gun uh with a knee-jerk reaction and then taking too long but i think if you want to show that you're a highbrow professional operation you need to take the time and conduct a thorough and proper investigation regardless of how clear-cut the evidence may seem to be yeah i couldn't uh agree more on that point and i think i think you know no matter what the New Yorker did or Condé Nast did, they were going to be criticized criticized for by somebody or by some news organization. Because if they would have moved quickly, somebody would have said that they didn't, um, you know, give Tubin uh, enough time, uh, or it was too knee jerk, you know, like you you just mentioned. And I do think there are times where the quick dismissal happens, and we've talked about it on this show in the case of sort of the the racist woman in Central Park uh, who was harassing a bird watcher. I mean, in that case, she worked for uh, I believe it was an in, a broker, an investment bank. And they let her go right away. But in that case, they saw immediate threat to the business if they didn't, because people were already talking about pulling money and assets out uh, of that account. So that's a little different. The New Yorker wasn't under the same kind of pressure. I think if they were, they may have acted faster. Um, so it's it's not it's not really a one size fits all. But in general, I, I completely agree. Take the time necessary to to review it thoroughly. Talk to the people involved and make sure that when the decision is made, um, you know, it's it's defendable uh, in case. Yeah, somebody comes comes after the company afterwards. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa. Hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out. Check it out. I want you to check this out on the PR and law podcast. All right, you and two things I wanted to mention uh, today. One is uh, the Ezra Klein Show podcast again. I think this is the third week in a row that I've 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 mentioned it. Um, but there's a a new episode out basically that looks at what's happening with the challenge to the election results. And you know he has a guest on um, who is quite versed in sort of democracies that sort of end up going a bit sideways and it's not about trump and ezra klein says this repeatedly that he finds trump rather kind of uninteresting but what he's interested in is the fact that the gop seems to be falling in line behind this challenge to some degree and how quickly the party fell to trump in general going back to 2015 2016 and what that sort of portends for the future and it's a it it is it is a kind of an an uneasy discussion to listen to um but i think it's it's definitely definitely worth worthwhile and then the second thing quickly ewan is um i I don't know if you've heard of parlor this is a conservative version of twitter it's actually been around since 2018 and they promise that they're going to be uh they're not going to moderate the content in any way and so it's meant to be a sort of a free speech social network which has kind of then been hijacked by the right and I, I logged into it this week, and it's <laughs> it's very interesting because you you sign in, and then it asks, you know, would you like to follow these people? And it presents like a who's who list from the from the right of, you know, Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson, and um, and you know, people along those lines. It's quite. <laughs> 
anyway, this 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 uh, service has kind of taken off. They've surpassed the one million users mark, which is very low compared to other social networks. But it's also double what it was a few weeks ago. So it's definitely got some uh, some some momentum. So there's an article on on Parler that I, in the Wall Street Journal that I'll I'll post to as well. Yeah, you know, Caitlin Flanagan from the Atlantic Cam. I don't know if you saw this. She was on uh, Bill Maher this week. And they, you know, the the issue of Parler came up, and she made a, a really good point, or what I thought was a really good point anyway, talking about how, you know, we've got to get the two sides in the United States back to the table together, um, and the media has to do a better job as well. And you know, Flanagan was sort of making the argument that on election night the vast majority of coverage, it was like, you know, in the, those early hours when it looked like Trump was going to win, we're basically in tears across the network yes. and we're looking for anything that might be indicative of, you know, that indicative of pro Biden results. And Flanagan was saying, you know, what do you expect? You've got a substantial portion of the population. I mean, more, more, as we know, it was what, 71 million voters uh, that voted for Trump approximately, I think. Um, this isn't, this isn't like a drop in the bucket. And you can understand why these individuals might be incredibly frustrated with mainstream media. And the reality is, is that if, you know, we don't create a means for everybody to play nice together, then what's going to happen is we're going to, yeah, we're going to have parlor, right? If, if Twitter gets to a place where no, we're not going to permit certain conservative voices that we deem to be inappropriate or unacceptable, they're just going to go elsewhere. Um, they're not going to go away. And I thought that Flanagan really sort of hit the nail on the head there, that it's not about whether or not you agree or disagree. It's about the fact that we're, they're all Americans and they have to come together and try and find some meeting of the minds. Yeah. And we, we talked about this on a previous show about the, the, the media uh, and how partisan it seems to have become. I'm definitely on board with everything you just said. And I did see uh, Flanagan on, on Bill Maher. I'll link to that as well in the show notes to take a look. Uh, but it, it's bad. I mean, I, I look at it and I go, if I'm a conservative, if I really feel strongly about President Trump and I support him, you don't see your views reflected anywhere in the mainstream media. It's not like, I mean, just Fox News and then the uh, the the other organizations that are even further sort of on the right. You have to go there. And those are by nature much smaller. Um, in the mainstream, there's just nothing. And this is this is why I do hold the big news organizations in the U.S., you know, partly responsible for Donald Trump being elected in the first place. And it looks like nothing has been learned. Absolutely nothing has been learned. And Flanagan's right in the sense that Trump supporters aren't going anywhere. I mean, Biden will take the White House and um, they're still going to be there. And it's going to be an issue for, for years to come unless there's some some effort made to to resolve it. But I'm, I think it's uh, it's going to be extremely difficult. I'm not holding my breath. <laughs> well, fair enough. Fair enough. Um, I wanted to talk, Cam, about, uh, and this isn't a particular article, there are lots of articles, but just the news story in general of um, Kim Ung, who was named the general manager of Major League Baseball's Miami Marlins earlier yeah. this week, um, making her the first woman to hold a GM position in the four major North American professional sports leagues. Um I mean, that's huge, huge news, or I feel like it should be bigger news than what it is. Um, yeah, I, you know, lots of great stuff written about this. And then unfortunately, some some not so great 
stuff written about this. But for those who aren't familiar with her, and frankly, I wasn't Cam. I, I was not a, either. You know, yeah. I, I have to admit, she she got started with the Chicago White Sox all the way back in 1990. Mm. So, um, you know, she's been around for a very, very long time. She worked for the organization until 96. And then in 98, she joined the Yankees and was there during, uh, you know, their World Series runs. She then moved on to the, the Dodgers from 2002 to 2011 and was in the, uh, the commissioner's office, the MLB commissioner's office from 2011 until 2020. So, you know, yeah. she's been in the game for a very, very, very long time and has been incredibly successful. Um, and, and I found this story sort of just really grabbed my interest. And I was reading all kinds of news reports from from different sources and on Twitter and was really kind of disappointed once again <laughs> with um, just sort of the inherent sexism misogyny that continues to permeate the sports world yeah this uh, you is know, the most conservative just stupid, yeah. just stupid comments you know a lot of men you know saying she should stay in her lane um you know that wow. chalked up the decision to you know liberal pandering and gender quotas <laughs> Uh, you know, I mean, just really, really, really ignorant stuff, particularly given just how long um, Kim Hung has been kicking ass in professional sports by the sounds of it. Yeah, that's um, that is an interesting story. And I did hear that just just recently. I think, you know, sports, we've we've talked about sports here, too. I mean, it's very conservative. They've got uh, an image issue. I think, you know, females are now more common on sports broadcasts in Canada and the US. But even that came very late. And then you talk about just being conservative. I mean, the uh, Columbus Blue Jackets in the NHL hired a Finnish general manager several years ago. And that was big news because it was the first time someone was hired from overseas. So, I mean, even before we get to sort of females in these roles, um, right now they're kind of picking executives from the same small pool of, you know, North American sports men. Uh, and so there's a long way to go here. And I do think that this is important. I think it's, uh, it, it's a, it, she's a role model, you know, for, for, for other females, and it's going to make the next team to do it, uh, probably more, um, more calm or more, um, less anxious about, about hiring a female because the first one has now been hired. And so, uh, now it's hopefully not as big of a deal going forward. Well, yeah. And, and here's the thing, like, this is one of those double edged swords, right? Where yes, this should be a big deal. And then at the same time, it really, really shouldn't be a big deal because she got the job because she was the best qualified person, mm-hmm. <laughs> person for moving gender pronouns. She was the most qualified person for the job. And I think we, we have to try and get to that place where, you know, we're not just focusing on the fact that, yes, she's a woman, she's a visible minority. How about the fact that she was the best qualified individual for the role? And that's why she was given the role. Um, and this idea that it was liberal pandering or she was there for gender, gender quotas. No, she was there because she's the best person for the job. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, having now done some background on who she was, that certainly seems to be the case. Yeah, I agree. Totally. Anything else you want to add, Ewan, before we wrap this one up? No, that's it. That was uh, that was a lot of fun. And again, it just 
so great having Simon on the show. Um, you know, we, we have these wonderful guests and I always sort of wish I could just have them on speed dial to get advice when I need it. Um, just, <laughs> you know, what? fantastic. I do have Simon on speed dial and I do call him frequently actually. So I, I work with him fairly closely. Uh, so all right, well, I'll call you and you can call <laughs> Simon. We can, we can figure it out that way. Yeah. He was absolutely great. Thanks again, Simon, Simon Murphy from Edelman joining us today. Um, so yeah, it was, it was a good show. We discussed all kinds of uh, interesting topics today. So don't miss any future episode either. We hope they're as good as this one. Uh, you can subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And you can follow us on social media as well. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And our newsletter. Very proud of our newsletter. You can sign up for that at prlawpodcast.club to get uh, notification when new episodes drop and other news about the show. So... Once again, for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.